Hi everyone, uh, I was talking to a business leader a few months ago. The guy's at the top of his game, he's made millions, he's, he's gone just a, about as high up the ladder of success as you can go. And I asked him a standard question that I just like to ask people, I just said, how's your soul? And the conversation changed, he, 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 his shoulders kind of slouched, his head kind of hung down. It was the first sign of insecurity that since we started talking. And he admitted that things weren't great. His marriage was struggling. He was still working through grief from a long time ago. He was drinking too much. He said, you know, I read the Bible sometimes, but, but when I do, I feel like such a failure. And that's a common problem. It's, it's easy to look at someone like Moses in the Bible and say, well, I don't have leadership like that. Or you look at Abraham or Paul. And it seems like everyone in those pages is so far beyond you. And even really accomplished people, like the guy I was sitting across from, like even if you're a huge success in finance or education or manufacturing, if you're really successful physically, like you're strong and fit and beautiful, even people who have really arrived in life, when it comes to spiritual stuff, it's easy to think, you know, all these Bible heroes are great and Jesus is great, uh, but I know myself and I'm not spiritual like them. And most days, if given the choice between unselfish or selfish, like, like should I spend a Saturday morning at a soup kitchen or helping my neighbor in their yard, or, or should I scroll social media and sleep in and have some me time? I usually choose myself. I'm no spiritual giant, I know me. And then when I read the Bible and I see people who had dropped everything and followed Jesus or who had faith and their handcuffs fell off and prison doors opened, man, I just don't relate to that level of spirituality. Okay, I have good news for you. The book of the Bible that we're heading into is written by someone that I think many of us can relate to. He's not an upper level Bible celebrity. He's kind of a second tier guy. He knew what it was like to try to follow Jesus and fail. And his name was Mark. And Mark was not a shining success story. He was a real guy with real failures, and he was acquainted with disappointment. And so today I'm going to share an overview of this brand new series that we're heading into on the Gospel of Mark. And we're not going to end this journey through the book of Mark until Easter of 2025. Now listen, I know that sounds intimidating, but we're going to be breaking away from it from time to time, and we'll also be segmenting the book down into sections and smaller series so that we can get our minds around it and so that we can follow the flow all the way through the book. So this first series of passages from the beginning of Mark, we're calling A Brand New Start. It's a new start of a, of a series for us. It's the start of a new ministry year for us. For many of you, it's the start of a new school year. Summer's over. But, but in Mark, it's also the start of, of John the Baptist's ministry. It's the start of Jesus' ministry. And so we're calling it a brand new start. In any given year at Grace, we have a mix of, of topical sermon series and teaching through books of the Bible because uh, you know that's we, we like to mix it up. And because we're going to be in this book so long, I want to take a moment to just talk about the value of teaching through a book of the Bible. The, the first value is it teaches us how to read the Bible. So the habit of many Christians is what I like to call the dip and skip method. You kind of, you know, close your eyes, flop your Bible open, you scroll your finger down the page and just hope God works his magic. And listen, I'm just happy when someone's engaging the Bible at all, sometimes regardless of methodology. And I've actually heard stories of God using the dip and skip method from time to time. So I'm not making fun here. I'm just suggesting that is not the best way to read the Bible in normal circumstances. Uh, just imagine reading any other book like that. Like take a novel and you plop it open, you just read a sentence and try to make sense of it. It wouldn't make sense. And the same is true for the Bible. And, and so it's why some of you are actually frustrated when you try to read it. The better way is, is, to, is to read it regularly and to read it book by book. 
And this allows you to see the context, it allows you to see where that story that you're reading fits into the greater narrative of God's work in the world, it allows you to apply it more specifically to your life without making wild leaps to try to you know, connect dots from unconnected events from the ancient world to the modern world. And, and so as we go through this series, we're gonna model the approach of reading through a book. Now, this doesn't mean that topical preaching is bad. It's topical preaching is actually the equivalent of you doing your own Bible study and searching the Bible for something specific. Like, what does the Bible have to say about anxiety? And then you look for all the passages that have to do with that and you do a little study on it. What does the Bible say about family? That's a series we just came through. And you kind of approach it that way. There's a huge value to doing that as well. And so we're gonna always model both approaches here. But as we go through Mark, we're gonna model how to read the Bible through a book. The second value of teaching straight through a book is that it forces us to talk about things that we would rather skip over. And so when you read straight through, you can't just go from bumper sticker verse to bumper sticker verse. You, you have to deal with all of it, which means as we go through Mark, we're gonna be wrestling with hard passages like Mark 3.26, whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Uh, Mark 4.11, where Jesus basically says that he speaks in parables so people will be confused. Uh, 10.11, where it seems to say that if you get divorced and remarry, you're, you're basically committing adultery. 10.25, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven. And so we, we, we get to deal with all of the unhighlighted sections of your Bible, which is sometimes hard, but really cool. And so you may ask, well, why are we studying Mark right now? Why did we decide to do this? Well, there are generally just some cool things about Mark. Like it was almost certainly the first gospel written. It's called Mark and Priority. So of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both Matthew and Luke seem to have borrowed a lot of material from Mark as they were writing their own accounts. For example, 60% of Matthew is word for word out of Mark. Now, John is a different animal altogether, but, but, but not only is Mark the earliest gospel, it's also the shortest one. Mark is known for his straightforward style. He doesn't pull any punches. So there are no embellishments, there's no exaggerations. In fact, even when Mark is reporting on miracles, his accounts generally lack any fanfare. Because for Mark, the miraculous events are not the main focus of his concern. They are used only to highlight the identity of Jesus. It's like no matter what is happening, Mark is standing there pointing, saying, hey guys, Jesus is here, and he is who he says he is, and we get to follow him. That's Mark's focus. But, but there is a more localized and, and really personal reason that I want us to go through Mark right now, and it's because of where we are as a church. Yeah, I've quoted Ken Blanchard before who said, leaders have to continually ask themselves two questions. What business are we in and how's business? Well, here at Grace, we're in the disciple-making business. We wanna see more and more disciples of Jesus made here and better and better disciples of Jesus nurtured here. And I would say that the disciple-making business is going in the right direction, but we're not there yet. Some of you know we're in the process of making structural and, and systemic changes in how we do church around here to help us to make more and healthier disciples. But I truly believe that teaching through this gospel of Mark will provide the perfect foundation for this re-emphasis around grace on discipleship. So we're gonna be asking and answering this question again and again through this series. Who is Jesus? Why is he worth following? And how do we do it? And I just believe Mark is gonna help us to focus all our attention on Jesus because the more we know of him, and the more we know of ourselves, the more of ourselves we can give to him. 
I said earlier that Mark is relatable because he was an imperfect follower of Jesus. So I, I wanna explore some insights into the life of Mark. I think it'll help us to understand him. Now, officially the author is anonymous, but from very early on in church history, this gospel was attributed to Mark, who is sometimes called John Mark. And so Papias of Asia Minor attributed the book of Mark, or to Mark, less than 50 years after it was written, which means there were still people alive to attest to the circumstances of the writing. Now, interestingly, Mark was not one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And so we ask, well, where did he get all of his information? Where did he get his research? Well, there, there are a couple of important sources. We find out in 1 Peter 5.13 that Mark was a ministry partner, a traveling companion, and, and really even sometimes an interpreter for Peter. So, so Peter sends greetings from John Mark to the church, whom he calls my son. And so, so they have this very tight relationship. And many scholars believe that the Gospel of Mark is really a collection of the memoirs of Peter. Uh, well, where did Peter and Mark first meet? Well, it's possible that their connection went all the way back to Mark's childhood. They're first mentioned together in Acts 12, 12. I shared this passage in our, our last series, but it's pertinent here. Remember, Peter had been imprisoned by Herod. He was awaiting execution. In fact, one of the sons of thunder, James, had already been executed by Herod, and so Herod was kind of on a roll. And Peter was chained up with multiple levels of security when an angel comes and breaks him out of jail. Now, at the same time, a bunch of Christians were gathered in what was maybe the first house church of Christianity, which is where Peter went after his escape from prison. Remember, he's knocking at the door, a young girl answers, doesn't let him in because all the Christians need to have a discussion first about maybe it's an angel out there and not Peter. Meanwhile, Peter's just out there knocking and knocking. Okay, well, we find out whose house it is in Acts 12, 12. It says, he went to the house of Mary, look, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And so John Mark's mother, Mary, was hosting one of the very first house churches in Jerusalem, which was Peter's kind of home base. And so Mark's mom's home was one of the mainstays of the early Jesus movement. Now, church tradition also says that this may have actually been the same home in Jerusalem where the disciples gathered in the upper room for Passover, the Last Supper. Maybe the same house where they were hiding when Jesus appeared to them through the wall. Maybe the same house where they were praying when the Holy Spirit first came upon them at Pentecost. Now, that, that's not certain or proven by any stretch, but Mark's boyhood home may have been a central location for some of the key first events of Christianity. Now, we know that Mark was a young boy when Jesus died on the cross, probably 10 or 12 years old. We know this because he was still a young man, probably a late teenager, when he joined Paul's first and second missionary journey some 10 years later. Many believe he may have been the streaker who fled from Jesus' arrest. Did you know that the Bible includes a story of a streaker? Some of the kids are like, what's a streaker? So, so Mark... 1450, 50, Jesus, it says, Jesus had been arrested and it said, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And the, and the question is, well, who else could have known about that unless it was the author, John Mark himself? So maybe he had followed the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper, which was held at his mom's house in the upper room earlier that evening. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's an interesting possibility. But, but we do have this sense that Mark had a front row seat 
And later when Paul and Barnabas were ready to go out on their first missionary journey to, to take the story of Jesus to the ends of the earth, the Bible says that John Mark was with them as their assistant. They, they brought him with them from Jerusalem to Antioch. So Acts 12, 25 says, and Barnabas and Saul returned, that's to Antioch, from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so they came to Antioch with Mark from, from where they were sent out on one of their first of many journeys. And just a few verses later, we read in 13.4 that they had John to assist them. And so John Mark was part of the very first team sent out to spread Christianity around the world. Now, this didn't all go perfect. Later on, we find out down in verse 13 that Paul and his companions set sail from uh, Paphos and came to uh, Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, this was evidently a big deal to Paul. He, he would later say that John Mark had abandoned them. Paul saw this move kind of as a breach of contract. And so, you know, we, we, we asked, well, why did John Mark leave the mission field? And we can only make educated guesses, and there are no shortage of options. Maybe Mark got homesick. Maybe he was scared. Their destination was riddled with bandits. Maybe he didn't want to contract malaria. Maybe he didn't like Paul's itinerary. Maybe he opposed Paul's leadership up until they left. Really, Barnabas had been the leader. Maybe he opposed Paul's mission going to the Gentiles. It was, in fact, a very controversial move. Anyway, regardless, what we do know is that there can be some pitfalls with young leaders. <laughs> this is a universal truth, and he was a young leader. And a desire to empower young people to lead, maybe before they're ready, can backfire in spectacular ways. But it's still worth it, always, by the way. Over the next few years, though, John Mark seemed to get himself right. He ultimately reconciled with Paul. Paul would later tell his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.11, he said, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And so Mark and Paul reconciled, and then somewhere along the line, Mark joins Peter. They go to Rome, where Mark listened to Peter's preaching. Obviously, they traveled together, they started new churches together, they had conversations about Jesus together, and you can almost imagine Mark constantly asking Peter what it was like to be with Jesus for those three years. Like, what did you guys do? What did you guys talk about? Tell me about his best sermons. Tell me about his most amazing miracle. And so Mark got insight into Jesus' story from the perspective of Peter. One of the themes of Mark talks a lot about in, in his gospel is this, this discipleship failure theme. I'll talk about it in a moment. But Mark is very quick to point out the times when the disciples just weren't getting it. And I think two things contribute to his kind of focus on this failure theme. He had heard stories from Peter's perspective. And, I, and you can imagine Mark just going, Peter, you said what? You know? And also, Mark maybe wrote his gospel after his time with Paul when he was feeling his own failure after abandoning the ministry of Paul. And so Mark was acutely aware of how following Jesus can make you feel like a failure at times. And it's one of the reasons I think that his gospel is so relatable to us. See, when we come to a book of the Bible, I think it's always important to ask, why was it written? And so let's ask, why did Mark write this gospel? And like much of the New Testament, let me answer it this way. Mark should be read as a pastoral response to difficult times that the church was facing a major crisis in the early 60s, a crisis of survival. Eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus were starting to die off. There was a, an, a need for them to kind of write down the teachings and traditions of Jesus, especially in Rome. Christians were considered to be a threat both politically and religiously to other groups. 
And so there was this growing hostility against the Jesus movement. And so these early followers were, were, were all new believers in Jesus. And so you can imagine Peter and Mark and the other church leaders that figuring out how to deal with this. Like, what do these people need to know about the origins of their faith? How, how, will, how, how can we help them respond confidently to questions and rumors about Jesus, who was executed by the sentence of a Roman magistrate, by the way? And so Mark set out to compile a written account from the teachings and the memoirs of Peter that would edify the young church and and it would provide them with a resource to help them proclaim the gospel to the Greco-Roman world in which they lived. And living out the gospel in that world was not easy. Christians were facing increasingly trying conditions. Mass arrests had begun. Executions would soon follow. And so Mark is writing against a backdrop of suffering and, and even martyrdom. And so he keeps pointing them to Jesus. He's saying that nothing that you're experiencing was foreign to Jesus. He had gone before you to show you the way. And guys, I would say these days, Christians are facing, not the same, but facing increasingly trying conditions. And we too need to know how to walk with Jesus through our current time like never before. And this gospel couldn't be more relevant to us. So I wanna spend the rest of my time today introducing you to the four major themes that we will revisit regularly through this Gospel of Mark. Each one has a a discipleship prompt that goes with it that you can find over at the website, but I wanna frame these four themes in this way. Four reasons you should be excited to study Mark. How's that for positive priming? (laughs) And in each reason, I wanna introduce you to one of the, the four themes. So here's the first reason to be excited. You should be excited if you are ready to investigate who Jesus really is. And the theme here is this son of God, son of man theme. So right off the bat, Mark establishes this theme in his very first kind of thesis statement in Mark 1.1. He says in the first verse of his whole gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So this word gospel literally means good news. And so to his Greek audience, they understood this word to be a proclamation of victory from a battlefield or the announcement of the birth of, the, of an heir to the emperor where you know, an announcement was made from the balcony of the grand castle and all the people would cheer. These were glad tidings of good news or the word gospels, good news. And he says, this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just to be clear, that word Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's not like we're going, you know, hey, this is Tom Jones, this is Sally Smith, this is Jesus Christ. The word Christ is more of a title. It means anointed one or Messiah. And the Messiah, remember, is the one that God's people had been waiting for for generations. He's finally here, Jesus, the Messiah. And then the statement ends with this other title, Son of God. And so Mark introduces this title, Son of God, right here at the beginning, the first verse. And he comes back to it again over at the end in Mark 15, 39. A Roman centurion stands at the cross and he declares plainly Mark's big idea. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And so Mark begins and ends with this idea of Jesus as the Son of God. He is the uncontested main subject. He is the lead character of this Gospel of Mark. And we will see throughout the book that Mark is reminding us often that Jesus is both God and man, Son of God, Son of man. And we see his divinity, his godness at his baptism. We see it at his transfiguration. We see it in his authority over demons and over nature. We see his omniscience. He's, he's understanding what people are thinking without them saying words. 
And so make no mistake, Jesus is God in the flesh, Son of God. But Mark is also diligent in showing us the humanity of Jesus. And so we get to observe Jesus' sorrow and his disappointment. We see in Jesus emotions like amazement and fatigue, even anger. And so we see this dichotomy in Jesus as the God-man. And maybe best described in Mark 10, 45, we know that Jesus is God and he's worthy of all of our worship and sacrifice and service. But Mark says it this way. He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Son of God, Son of Man. And let me just remind us here. There has never been anyone like Jesus. His life was so compelling. His teaching was so powerful that, that thousands of people would gather together on a hillside just to hear him, just to follow him. They would sit for days and listen to him. They didn't want to go home. Has that ever happened to you? Like so compelled by a sermon on a Sunday that you just want to stay all day. Just keep going, Derek. No? I didn't think so. But with Jesus, people did that. And one of the ways that Mark is unique among the other gospel writers is that we learn who Jesus is not so much from what he says, but from what he does. Mark writes with a paintbrush, and he invites us into the drama. And so to Mark, the, the actual flesh and blood person, the, the life of the teacher, Jesus, is far more important even than his sayings. And so we, we find ourselves here in 2023 amongst a generation that is far less interested in what we say we believe and much more interested in seeing us live out to what we believe. And so to you young people listening who are fed up with some of the hypocrisy that you see in the church, I think it'll be refreshing for you to study a man whose life was as consistent as his words. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then by studying his teachings and by becoming familiar with his lifestyle, you have this unbelievable opportunity to make sense of your existence, an opportunity to make sense of your life, to find your identity, to answer the haunting questions, that, that, if, that if you power off your devices and just sit in the presence of the life of Jesus for a moment, maybe answers would start to chase you down. Why there's suffering, why the world is dark, why it doesn't seem to make sense, why with every advancement humanity makes, does it seem like we go backwards at the same time? Like if you're someone or you know someone who just wants to look into this man named Jesus, his life, his teachings, you should be really excited about this journey through Mark. The second reason you should be excited about this study is if you sense there are supernatural forces at work. The, the theme uh, the, that this points to is cosmic conflict. I think no matter your worldview, we all have a sense deep down that there are forces of both good and bad at work in our world. We are beings of multiple dimensions. We are physical creatures, we work with our hands, we work out, we eat, we write, we walk around on dirt. But there's also a spiritual dimension to us and to the world, a dimension that we don't see or feel. It's not as tactile, but it's equally real. You can probably remember a time in your life when something happened and it drew you to God, or maybe it rocked your faith for a while. And looking back, you say, you know what, that wasn't natural. I think there was actually something supernatural going on there. Mark comes back to this theme again and again. There's a spiritual world all around us at all times, and it's not natural. It's and, and it's also not neutral, and it's not benign. There's not some vague force out there called evil that makes our life a little annoying at times. No, Mark reveals to us that evil has a name and a personality, that there is an enemy of our souls named Satan who is actively working all around us at all times. There is a cosmic conflict going on that's just as real as your morning coffee. 
And so as we read through Mark, we're gonna see this cosmic conflict playing out. From the opening story of Jesus' temptation to personal encounters with the demonic world to, to, to what looks like a win for the other team at the cross, from beginning to end, Jesus is in a battle with his foe and our enemy, and it's very real. Mark shows us a picture of Jesus as, as one who violently confronts sin, who assaults the, the cosmic forces of evil. And then he passes on this ministry to his followers, to us, who will participate with him in his supernatural victory. Mark points, uh, paints I'm sorry, for us one of the most vivid pictures of spiritual warfare in the whole Bible in chapter 3, where he presents Jesus as a victorious general who is plundering Satan's realm which is this world. And Jesus will go to every length to fight for his children who are under the siege of the enemy. Cosmic conflict. The third reason to be excited is, is if you want to follow Jesus but too often fail. And this is that discipleship failure theme. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, earlier. Mark's own failures in abandoning Paul and Barnabas. And as we talked about how he's maybe chronicling Peter's life, and we all know Peter's story of failure as the one who denied Jesus three times. Is it any surprise then that of all the gospel writers, Mark is the hardest on the disciples? He writes about Jesus' closest companions and they consistently don't understand his teachings. They consistently fail to exhibit true faith. They say dumb things. They're constantly scared. They're, they're constantly thick-headed. They're untrustworthy. They're disobedient. I mean, you're, you're gonna read through Mark and, and you'll be feeling better about yourself by the minute. <laughs> and here's what we'll learn. The answer to our failings is always Jesus. It's as if Mark is reminding us, yes, Yes, come to grips with your failure. But in the end, you just need Jesus. How many of you know that the church is a place for failures? Aren't you grateful for that? It's not a museum for the saints where you know people come in, every decision they make is perfect, every suit and tie pulled tight, every painted on smile. No, the church is a place for those who fall down and keep getting back up. It's a place for people who fail and then need to be forgiven. It's a place for those who need to be restored because restoration is what God is into. And so Mark's portrayal of discipleship failure gives us all hope. And here's what we're going to see. They failed and they failed and they failed. But something radical happens to these guys. It's called the cross. The cross changes everything for them. After the cross, they are transformed. And by the way, the same is true for you. The cross changed everything for you too. Your, your ability to have right standing before God is not based on your performance. It's performance. It's based on God's grace alone, purchased for you at the cross. You don't have to get all cleaned up first before you come to Jesus. It's just like you don't clean a fish before you catch the darn thing. I'm so thankful that God knew every stupid thing I was ever going to do before he saved me, and he saved me anyway. That's why it's called grace, and that's why it's so amazing. And while we were still sinners, the Bible says, while we were still the worst of the worst, that's the moment Christ died for us, and so be excited for Mark. If you're ready to investigate who Jesus really is, if you sense that there are supernatural forces at work in the world, if you wanna follow Jesus and too often fail, and the fourth reason to be as excited is if you would like to demonstrate more faith in your everyday life. This is what we're calling the ordinary heroes theme. This theme is almost the flip side of Mark's discipleship failure theme. See, as Mark writes, it seems like every time the disciples fail big time, he introduces us to, to an obscure, no-name, minor character who then shows us, the reader, 
what great faith actually looks like. And so he lets the underdog be the hero while the disciples are kind of blundering about. I'll give you a couple examples. In chapter five, Jesus and the disciples are on their way across the sea in a boat and a huge storm whips up. And Jesus is asleep you know, in the hall while these seasoned fishermen are shrieking like schoolgirls. And Jesus comes out and he points out their failure. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And that word still is very important. It's discipleship failure. He's like, what more do I have to do so you guys will have faith? And then when they get to the other side, Jesus heals a guy named the Gerasene demoniac. No name. But when, you, when we get there, you'll see just the most screwed up guy you will ever meet. And he demonstrates a true and genuine and profound faith. The disciples didn't get it, but this total irreligious outsider gets it. In chapter 7, we meet a woman called the Syrophoenician woman. Again, we don't even know her name. Jesus has been explaining to his disciples how being clean and unclean is an internal thing, not an external thing. Righteousness flows from the inside. The disciples don't get it. Jesus says, you lack understanding. I like the NIV version better where he says, why are you so dull? Again, discipleship failure. And immediately we meet this minor character a woman whose daughter is demon-possessed, and she knows who Jesus is. She gets it. She believes that he has the power to heal her daughter. She even refers to herself as a dog under the table, kind of licking up the scraps. She, she demonstrates this amazing faith, this humility. She puts herself rightly in the story, and, and, and she understands what Jesus can do, and her daughter is healed. And there are many more examples of this that we'll see, but my point is, is this. World-changing faith is not something that's reserved for the religious elite. It's not something that's reserved for pastors or missionaries. It's for all of us. I don't care how mundane your life is. I don't care how normal your normal is. You can have a world-changing faith that shows up in your everyday life. See, faith as presented by Mark is faith with overalls and dirty fingernails. It's a faith that fights through doubt. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, who recently passed away, he, he said this about the Christian faith. He said, every morning you should wake up in your bed and, and ask yourself as a Christian, can I believe it all again today? And no better still, he says, don't ask until after you've read the New York Times, until after you've seen again the world's brokenness and corruption. Then ask, can I believe it all again today? And he says this, and I love this. He says, if your answer is yes, 10 days out of 10, you don't have the kind of faith I have. He says, if it's more like three days out of 10, that's more like my faith. And then on the other seven days, you should say, yes, I believe it all again through great laughter. See, faith is for the ordinary. And guess what? There are ordinary heroes all around you, and there's an ordinary hero inside you too. God will show up in your life when you least expect it. He's just waiting for that faith to be unleashed. Uh, so I can't wait to explore this with you. I can't wait to explore this gospel with you. I just want to offer a couple next steps today. You know, we've created a website, a really extensive website, everything that you're going to need for this series. So please visit the, the Mark website. It's over at whoisgrace.com slash Mark. Very easy to remember. You can stay current there with all that's going on in this series. There's daily reading resources. There's life group resources. We have a podcast called the Exiles Podcast. You can access it there. There are recaps of where we've been in the book so that you're never, you know, too far removed. So check it out. I also want to encourage you this week to read through Mark. Just pick a time, pick a place, and just read it cover to cover. It should take you about 20 minutes or so. 
And as you know, being a disciple of Jesus isn't about kind of navel-gazing. It's not about just focusing on my, myself. There's an outward-focused, multiplication, missional endeavor that goes with being a disciple of Jesus. And, and so we just believe strongly that you are where you are for a reason, that you live where you live for a reason, you work where you work for a reason, but beyond a paycheck and a mortgage payment. And so we're encouraging you through this series to kind of find out who are the eight people closest to you, maybe who live closest to you, and just pray for them as part of our Pray for Eight initiative. You should have received something in the service today. And listen, if you have friends or neighbors or loved ones or coworkers who you think would benefit from learning about the ways and teachings of Jesus, guys, invite them to church with you next week. Don't miss the opportunity to be a peddler of hope. I'm just very excited to go on this journey with you through Mark. Love you guys.